Greetings, Cap fans, and welcome to episode 47 of the Captain America Comic Book Fans Podcast. I am your host, Rick Verbanis, and as always, I'm joined by the best gosh darn co-host out there, Mr. Bob Lucius, or should I say, hello, Dr. Bob. Dr. Bob, Dr. Bob, do you remember, uh, what was that, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman? Probably you don't remember that, right? There's a TV um, show, like a sitcom in the 70s. My, my sisters used to watch that. I don't know. if I never watched that, but my, they, it was always on TV. Uh, the only Dr. Bob I knew was Bob Newhart. Bob, oh, Bob Newhart, yeah. There's another famous Dr. Bob. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and so, uh, you know, for those out there who don't know, Bob, uh, we always talk about that Bob, you know, was, uh, spent 25 years in the, in, in the Marines uh, and uh, – has served his country, but a lot of people don't know. We uh, Bob's a intellectual. Uh, Bob Bob um, is a uh, what is he? Are you uh, like a pr- professor? What, a professor, what? Yeah, indubitably, yes, 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 yes. yes, yes. yes. At a uh, as a at a at a college in in Florida, and he has his PhD. So, uh, so yeah, that this week's greeting is. Hello, Dr. Bob. And why? Why, you may ask, am I referring him to him as Dr. Bob? That's because in honor of today's guest, which is Dr. J. Richard Stevens. So looking forward to, to talking uh, uh, to him in a little bit. Um, uh, and um, so, Bob, how you been? How, how's the week going? Good, man. Good. I mean, considering uh, I'm still vertical, man. I mean, that's a good <laughs> thing, right? Every my day mom, above yeah. ground, right? <laughs> Every day above ground. I got a, I got a card one year. I think it was a Christmas card from my mom, who I was having some health issues. wasn't all quite there, but she wrote in the card, "Thank God I'm still vertical." So I always keep that in mind, right? You gotta. Very nice. It's a good attitude to have. <laughs> Look on the right? bright side, right? Look on the bright side. So. Yes. You know, and that um, that's a good segue, Bob. You know, I, I think having a positive attitude in life uh, is is very, very important. Um, I'm a glass half full kind of guy. Um, I practice gratitude on a daily basis. Uh, I know that I'm very, very blessed in many things. Uh, Try not to sweat the small stuff. Um, But you know, the other thing too, Bob, as far as uh, a positive attitude is concerned, um, I think that's one of the things that appeals to me so much about our favorite character, Captain America, uh, specifically Mr. Steve Rogers. Um, and I know there's been times where uh, we have referenced, what would Cap do? Mm-hmm. Right? No. And, and, and I'm glad you bring this up, Rick, because, uh, you know, there have been times in Cap's life where uh, he has been down in the dumps, right? But he manages to uh, find a way to pull, pull himself back up by his uh, bootstraps and get moving again. And I think that's a testament to the character because we all have moments like that in our lives, you know? Um, but he, he sets a good example for how, how we can keep going, keep moving forward, never, never give up, never surrender. Yeah. He has so many positive attributes that we, we appreciate and look up to. And, um, so, Hey, we've announced this on our Facebook group, the Captain America comic book fans, Facebook group. And I think it's time to uh, announce it here on the podcast. We, we teased about this a few, a little while that we've got this premium, that we want to uh, to have to give out uh, as a thank you to our patrons uh, for those who uh, contribute to to um, to the group, uh, and uh, you can do so as well. We have um, uh, 
I guess there's three different levels, right? I mean, there's like 99 cents a month. I think, what do we call that? We call that the, the Bucky, right? Right. That's the marketing guy. I mean, Bob. Yeah. 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 Right. Yeah. Um, so, and, uh, and, and if you want to do that, Hey, thank you. And, and as a way of saying, thank you, uh, we have a few different things that we want to, to give to you. Okay. So for the 99 cents, the, the Bucky level, Bob, uh, they get uh, get a couple things. One, they're they're going to get automatically entered into any of our contests. And number two, you're going to be automatically pre-approved uh, for any posts in the Facebook group. So uh, no no need to wait to have uh, your posts approved. Um, and so that that's the first level. Um, second level, which is four ninety nine a month, which let's face it, it's the price of a comic book, right? Uh, so. At that level, we're calling that our shield slinger, Bob. Our shield slinger level, what you get for that, you get the opportunity to, one, automatically know ahead of time who our guests are going to be. And you're also able to uh, ask a question that we may use uh, in the podcast to, uh, to ask our guests the question. So you get that. And then, Bob, this is... This is what I'm excited about. And this is probably why we're calling it the Shield Slinger. We have this really cool premium that we created that it's a challenge coin. And uh, Bob, do you want to explain to the listeners what a challenge coin is for those who aren't familiar? Sure, Rick. I mean, I think for anybody who, uh, who has you know, maybe served in the military or in uh, fire departments or even in police departments and, you know, where these sorts of uh, these items have become uh, real popular in, in recent years, they're, they're essentially sort of heavy, heavy, uh, heavy coins and usually, usually made out of bronze or something. And they're, they're designed to represent either the organization that you belong to or uh, the leader of that organization. And you carry them in your pocket. Uh, and, and the challenge is, if you go into, uh, if you're in a bar, because, uh, you know, guys in the military and police and fire apparently spend a lot of time in bars, somebody pulls out a challenge coin, they challenge you. Uh, and if you're not carrying a coin, it doesn't have to be the same coin, but it has to be a coin, then you got to buy the round of drinks. So uh, yeah, it behooves you to have your coin on you at all times. Right. Well, uh, so we've we created this challenge coin. Um, and and so the idea behind the challenge coin is um, sort of like a reminder. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So on one side, the character characteristics say courage, integrity, compassion, sacrifice. On the other side, they say humility, empathy, honesty, perseverance. And in the center on the other side, you know what it says, Bob? What would Cap do? And so this is a, uh, this is a, a really nice coin. It's like an inch and a half. Uh, it's heavy. Uh, it's got full color on both sides. And, um, you know, they, they, they weren't cheap, but, but we didn't want to spare any expense in creating these uh, because we wanted to give something back to our patrons. So. If you are in the Shield Slinger uh, category, which is only four ninety nine a month, uh, you get um, and and you've been you've been in for three months, you'll get uh, this Captain America. What would Cap do? Challenge coin, and as well get to find out who our guests are and uh, and submit a question. Uh, 
And then you might say, well, Rick, what's the next level, right? So the next level, uh, which is $9.99 a month, you will, this is what we call our super soldier level. And the super soldier level gets everything I just mentioned. Plus you get once a year, the opportunity to be a guest on our show and you get to pick the topic and you get to come on and, and talk about uh, whatever it is you want to talk about. That's a great deal, Rick. I know, right? So these are just some ways that we wanted to give back to the people who are our patrons and who support us. So um, we're really excited about it. You can go, if you want to get more information, go to our website, which is real easy. It's captainamericacomicbookfans.com. And uh, you can get more information on there. And uh, if you, if you're so inclined, you can, um, you can sign up to, for, for a donation. So anyway, um, that's, uh, that's something we're really, really excited about. And you better have that coin in your pocket if I see you. That's right. <laughs> or, or the round's on you. Because I, I drink the expensive stuff. So <laughs> you're not going to get away cheap. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, Bob, um, you know, we're very excited to have uh, our guest on today. Um, uh, he's the, the author of a, a fantastic book, uh, which is called Captain America, Masculinity and Violence. And this came out, uh, the, this came out in what, 2015, uh, and then a paperback came out in uh, 2018. Um, so we're really excited to have uh, the author on the, on, the, on, the, uh, on the podcast with us. Um, so, Bob, did you want to maybe uh, give the listeners a little insight into to his background? Yeah. Well, you know, Rick, as you said, uh, Dr., uh, Dr. Stevens, uh, he, he's a professor like myself, but uh, he's, he's uh, you know, I, I don't know how I stumbled into uh, doing the professor thing. It just sort of happened, Rick. I guess I needed a job or something, right? I'm still trying to figure out what I want to do when I grow up. But, uh, but Dr. Stevens, he is a, he's an associate professor and a department chair out at uh, the College of Media, Communications, and Information at the University of Colorado at Boulder. So he teaches undergraduate and graduate courses on a range of things that sort of touch on popular culture, right? Popular culture, the media, which sort of focuses on what we're going to be talking about here tonight. So he's, you know, he's widely published. As you mentioned, he's, uh, he's written uh, Captain America, Masculinity and Violence, but he's, he's, he's got a whole range of interests. But the, really the sorts of things that caught my attention uh, when I stumbled across his work was his, his, his focus on Captain America. I mean, that's like fortuitous, right? There's some synchronicity there that uh, this is something we all love and appreciate. So not only did he, did he publish this book, um, but before he published the book, back in, I think, 2011, he published an article in the Journal of Popular Culture that examined this. Uh, you, may have, you may be familiar with this. It was called the, uh, the, the Rap with Cap Letter controversy mm-hmm. took place over about six years, you know, starting around 1969. And then there were about 60 letters that he analyzed, and, you know, and these were from fans, but also the responses from the different creative teams about what, what, what's the relationship between Captain America and patriotism, right? How do, how does Cap exemplify patriotism? It was a very spirited debate, but it was an important debate in sort of the transformation of Cap that took him from that man out of time era that began in 1964 
into the era of, uh, you know, Friedrich and, and Engelhardt and everything that came after in, in the 70s. So it's a fascinating article. And I encourage everybody to look it up if you get a chance. He also wrote a, uh, one the next year. It was in the International Journal of Motorcycle Studies, I think. And it sort of looked at uh, three key issues uh, that that was Cap's first cross-country motorcycle trip, right? And, and oh, how yeah. that sort of fed into this transformative path that Cap took mm-hmm. uh, from that earlier era to the era of the 1960s and examine that through the lens of like comparing it to, you remember that movie in 1969, Easy Rider? Of course, yeah. Yeah, right? You know, uh, Peter Fonda yeah. had yes. the Captain yeah. America motorcycle helmet. Mm-hmm. So sort of contrasting and comparing those two uh, different types of media and uh, and you know getting some insights from that. So I'm really excited to have this guy on tonight. Dr. Stevens, this book uh, is one of my favorite books. I've read it a number of times. I read it again uh, before uh, the interview tonight. And I'm super excited to have him here, Rick. You know, I'm like, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm often excited, but I am super duper excited tonight. Well, I'm excited as well. So let's go ahead and get to it. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, we're now joined by Dr. J. Richard Stevens, but uh, uh, we're going to, he, he actually said we could call him Rick. So uh, normally we would say there can only be one, but uh, in your case, we're going to make an exception. So uh, Dr. Stevens, uh, Rick, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Um, and thank you for letting me use my name. I feel like we can be friends this way. <laughs> <laughs> we love it. I feel like the odd man out. I feel very uncomfortable about this. Oh, whatever, whatever, Robert. <laughs> oh, okay, we're gonna go there, are we? Okay. Yeah. All right. So anyway, I'm I'm super excited to have you here tonight, uh, Rick. Uh, I, I I've read your book a number of times. I've read your uh, several of your you know your published articles. Um, I always find them entertaining, illuminating, insightful. So for me, this is a real treat to have you here tonight. But I want to like I want to go way back in the beginning, right? Yeah. So in the, in the preface of your book, uh, you talk about uh, how you became familiarized with uh, the character of Captain America fairly yeah. early in your life. And so for, you know, for the listeners who haven't read the book yet, because I yeah. know they will uh, after they listen tonight, <laughs> uh, can, you, can you recount that story for us and let us sure. know how that all began? Yeah. Um, so, you know, like a lot of people, I read um, comics when I was um, younger um, I had read kind of a mixture of DC and Marvel. Um, I probably as a kid, I was more of a Spider-Man person, uh, but Captain America was always kind of there um, in that in that field. Um, and so I kind of grew up really intrigued by um, him and how people would react to him and, and all of that. And then I stopped reading comics for a long time. Um, you know, I was working, I went to college, and I just kind of stepped out. The, the 90s were not a great uh, comic era for me personally. Right. And, um, you know, boy, when I went back and reread a lot of that, I, re- I remembered why. But, um, but um, you know, that was a, just a 
kind of a hiatus on to other things. And then in uh, 2003, um, I was in a KB store in the mall, a KB toy store. KB toys. Yeah. Yeah. I remember um, those. And I was looking for a gift for my nephew um, who at the time was really into Aquaman. And I don't know if you remember, but it was impossible to find Aquaman um, for the longest time. That was not the most popular DC character. Um, but while I was in there, I just happened to notice these um, Marvel inspirational posters. Um, they were eight by 10, they were framed um, and they were um, put together, you know, I guess to put on a kid's wall and, and kind of give them a little bit of um, inspiration. Um, like, for example, I remember Spider-Man's would say responsibility and then, you know, would have a quote underneath it with great power comes great responsibility, etc. But the Captain America one caught my eye because it said patriotism. Mm -hmm. And I was like, OK, because most mm. of these were like fortitude and responsibility and, you know, all of these and then patriotism. Um, and it had a it had a quote from John F. Kennedy from his 1961 inauguration. And that was a. Uh, that was an interesting time in our culture to be thinking about that. I was in grad school. Um, you know, America had invaded Iraq that year. Um, there was that. This is when the war was starting to become less popular, and people were starting to think about our, our mission abroad. And it just got me thinking, like, oh, patriotism. What what would that even mean for Captain America right now um, if he was, you know, facing this? And so that just um, I went on and, and, and did all the shopping and everything. And then it just kind of stuck with me. And then um, that led me to eventually go back and find that uh, fourth volume of Captain America that came out in 2002. And boy, that was uh, not what I was expecting, because I at that point I was expecting Marvel Comics, like so many other um, outlets and industries to be really safe. That was a big you know, moment where everybody was wearing flag pins and everybody was very, um, you know, on message with the government. And here you have this um, 2002 Captain America series where he's questioning whether S.H.I.E.L.D. can be trusted, whether S.H.I.E.L.D. had something to do with 9-11, whether, you know, terrorists were really evil or villains or, you know, where does America fit into this messy um world where we have decades of legacies of of operations that went bad and all of this stuff and i just thought wow comics are not what i thought they were and that was the marble knight series it was more for adults i just hadn't known they had done all of that right so that kind of stuck with me and that got me asking questions um about what had come before that and what was happening after that i started reading comics again and the more I did that, the more I started to see these patterns and trends that just kept working on me. Um, and, then, and then right down the rabbit hole. Yeah, and yeah. it just kept going. I mean, and, and I would probably say that that gave me my third data point of a different Captain America. You know, I had um, a couple of Captain Americas from my childhood and I knew, you know, he had gone through some transitions um, and then I saw that one being markedly different. Um, and then that led me to what are some other data points, some other moments where transitions happened um, and different things came on. And then that eventually I started writing about my reading of comics and then a database came about. And then here, here we go. I'm headed for something. Like that. Yeah, here we are. So, you know, in, in when we talk about your book, um, yeah. which is. Captain America, masculinity and violence. Um, what would you describe as the main argument of the book? Oh, sure. Um, so, you know, 
it's that cultural values and in particular masculinity, which I know we'll probably talk about in, in just a minute, um, that these uh, concepts are socially constructed, um, but that means they're a product of their age and their environment. Um, and that when we look at these long-standing heroes, Captain America, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, that exist over many decades, um, they actually wind up reinventing themselves over and over in order to fit kind of the marketplace needs um, of the given era. And yet they do that in a rhetoric that says they're timeless and they don't change. And so there's a paradox in there. Um, about our own history, our own culture, our own way of talking about ourselves um, that I think is reflected through these long comic book histories. I know you want to concise, but that was. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that, you know, th that's an excellent argument. And I, I think it sums it up very nicely. Yeah, you, you actually let's 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 talk about masculinity, right? Because sure. it's in the title and it's a it's a key, you know, focus of the book as well as um uh, its relationship with with violence itself, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and so I think basically you make an argument that sort of how Cap or Captain America um, mm -hmm. sort of exemplifies masculinity and his in his use of violence has has evolved over time. But can can you sort of like maybe give us a thumbnail of what exactly do you mean by masculinity? Because sure. you know I think a lot of folks say like they see the the title of the book, you know, they're not academics and they're like masculinity and violence. What is this, right? Yeah. Um, so, I know I did when I first saw it, but then I read the book and I was like, oh, I get it now. Yeah. Well, so let me let me um, boil it down a little bit. So masculinity studies um, aren't something that we talk about in our culture. Um, and part of that, um, so let me contrast it to say um, feminism. Um, feminism has noted discourses. We can look at certain points. Here's where people started talking about this and all of a sudden there was a movement, there was an argument, there was a discussion. And then here's another cultural moment. And masculinity doesn't really work that way because part of its narrative is that it's natural. Um, and that's like this cultural myth we have that, um, that men are men because men are natural. And yet masculinity, it differs. Um, it, it's, there's a broad range of practices of, of the way that we express manhood, what's accepted. It's different in different times. It's different in different places. But that see how that kind of matches mm -hmm. that, that um, mythology about patriotism is this evolution um, that, that comes into it. So it's kind of that invisible, um, that invisible value that is that's interesting to me. So when we say masculinity, it's the construction of the identity of malehood. Um, mm -hmm. And Captain America, of course, is the perfect male, right? I mean, that's right. his it's perfect man, right? Yeah, he takes a serum and gets vita rays, and suddenly he is the ultimate perfect male. So what he does kind of becomes an exemplar for what maleness is supposed to be. And you know, we can look at other sites, like in in some of my other classes. You know, we'll talk about sports. You know, sports become this site of when we watch NFL players, they become this exemplar of what men are supposed to be, even though that represents 1% of the population that can do those things, but they become kind of the norm um, of what aspirations are supposed to match to. And superheroes are like that. Um, they, just, they express these a, extreme values that then become influence what we think is normative. Okay. All right. So you make a, you make a compelling argument uh, in the book, I think anyway, for this sort of 
evolution of the reinterpretation of, of Captain yeah. America, right? And it's across different eras, uh, different uh, social cultural contexts, things change, different creative teams, there's the input of fandom. But like you mentioned earlier, there's this paradox um, yeah. where, you know, a central tenet of, of Captain America is that he is, you know, he's immutable, right? He's eternal, he doesn't change, right? He's the right. same. And yet, we see this, these evolutions, these transformations uh, from era to era to era that you you kind of, you lay it on your book chapter by chapter. I mean, how do we reconcile this? Yeah, well, part of it is that we reconcile it through the magic of comics uh, because, you know, comics have <laughs> their own rhetoric and they make a certain kind of sense, but not a real sense. You know, Marvel comics in particular struggle with this a lot um, because as opposed to say DC comics that has Metropolis and Gotham and all of these, you know, not real places um, you know, Marvel is set in New York city on certain streets, certain blocks, certain buildings, certain times, certain events. Um, and there was a the time early on in the silver age where they were mapping year by year, you know, you know, Peter Parker is going to advance one year, every year of, of this comic but then they get popular and they become brands and you can't really do that um, because otherwise Peter Parker's too old to be Spider-Man pretty fast. And, you know, I mean, this was the classic, you know, Ditko wanted, wanted Spider-Man to die because that would be the normal life process of this character. And there was no way Marvel was going to let that happen mm -hmm. when they were making so much money. Captain America though presents a particular challenge because his events are tied up in very, nailed down dates you know we're talking about world war ii you can't move world war ii around um it happened in a particular time and place um the events that that you know are referred to it uh that you know they're referred to in his books but um but then you also have this formula that you want to keep which is captain america is this man at a time he's got greatest generation values. He gets to comment on modern society and not understand parts of it, but speak truth and wisdom into it. But if he's here too long, right, he'll assimilate. And you don't want that to happen because then he loses all of his explanatory power. And so Captain America is in this fuzzy zone. And so some of the paradoxes that you're talking about, the idea of Captain America is he's been out of the ice 10 years, but that 10 years keeps moving. You know, it's like this yeah. telescoping movement of it. But meanwhile, I can go back in the text and say, there he is talking to Nixon. There he is talking to Carter. There he is talking to Reagan. There he is talking to Clinton in like 10, this is not 10 years. Right. Um, and so you kind of have this fuzzy continuity, um, you know, adjustment that's occurring where Marvel Comics wants to say that all of this is happening in lived reality that we'll recognize but you have to fudge it some um, in order to keep the character in stasis young enough and, you know, vibrant enough to, to, to meet his formula or, or else he becomes somebody else. And they, and they don't want these heroes to become someone else without them choosing that. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's hard. <laughs> yeah, right. it's complex stuff, right? And you got to appeal to each new successive generation. Right. So there's there's one other um, sort of theme or th uh, not theme, but uh, concept yeah. threaded throughout the book, and it's this idea of the American monomyth. Um, yeah. And and how Cap sort of fits into that American monomyth, right? Sure. So can you tell us a little bit about what that what that actually is? 
Yeah, let me unpack that. The um, and I'll I'll reference kind of the scholarly approach to this, um, and and then kind of decode it a little bit. Um, so in literature, what we're really talking about is starting with the concept of a monomyth, um, like Joseph Campbell's monomyth. People who like Star Wars are very enamored with um, Campbell's work. Um, but this idea in his book, The Hero of a Thousand Faces, that you know, there's really only certain set story patterns that work in Western civilization over and over. And that's just kind of how our, our mythology works. The American monomyth is a particular pattern. It's kind of a subset of that. Um, but what it does is it introduces the element of seriality. So I know all of that's already like, what are we talking about? Let me get it down on the ground. So a Western. Um, the movie Shane is like the perfect American monomyth because um, it has this pattern. Um, you have this um, person who has specific abilities that are exceptional. Um, he's a gunslinger, but he's trying to put it away. There's a reluctance um, to use these skills. Um, and so he's witnessing evil happening in his community, but he's resisting taking action until somebody goes too far, in this case, Jack Polancy, and does something so bad that now righteous whoop-ass becomes the, becomes the solution. And now he gets to shoot anybody. And it's okay. It's justified because this violence occurred that justifies everything that comes after that. But then the American monomyth part is um, what would happen in, in the monomyth is then, so then he, he, you know, enters society as this transgressor and he dies. It's tragedy, yada, yada, yada. But the serial part is no, no, he rides off into the sunset. He's got to go to another community because he can't be judged by what he's done He's the superhero. He's above all of this. And so he goes on to his next town and this process probably starts all over again. So we see that with Westerns, um, Braveheart, Mel Gibson and Braveheart is the perfect monomyth. I mean, he follows that pattern to a T. Um, we see that in Spaghetti Westerns. We see that in action movies in the 80s. Um, mm -hmm. That is John Rambo, Chuck Norris, Arnold Schwarzenegger, they all follow that pattern. Um, and you see it in superheroes. Uh, the difference being superheroes wear a mask so that their identity isn't known so that they don't get dragged into court and have to answer for it. But it's this idea that society cannot govern itself. It needs these super saviors. And here's how the righteous version of that is going to work in a way that we say, here are people breaking the law, but they're doing it in a way that has a higher calling or a higher good, a higher righteousness. And that's the American monomyth. Um, now that was used um, in the seventies to talk about Vietnam as a very troubling mythology that when we think of ourselves as a culture, as superheroes, we get into things that we don't want to talk out. We want to act. Um, that's also been used to talk about foreign policy and some of our more recent um, conflicts. But that's the social criticism coming out of it. The, the literary pattern is about how we come to these ideas. Like, why do we like these heroes? Um, and what do they tell us is right um, in the way that they're breaking the law, <laughs> you know, in a sense? Yeah. So it's interesting that you, you talk about these different time periods and you, you bring them together as far as uh, some different analogies, you know, with the Westerns and, and things like this. So, but sure. this has been going back, you know, not just decades this has been going back generations right this oh, is yeah. the way human culture kind of explains things um so you know cap's been around 80 years so let's i guess go back to 
you know, the forties when he was introduced uh, and he was a rage, right. It was, you know, incredibly popular. Um, But then there became a time, you know, during what is referred to as the golden age, you know, in the forties where he kind of fell out of favor. And then in in the post-war now during the war, huge post-war kind of fell out of favor. And then there was that, uh, you know, a brief reintroduction in in the fifties, you know, the commie smasher. Right. Right. Um, So what, what do you think led to his declining popularity in these instances? Yeah. So there's a couple of variables um, at work Um, as a media scholar. I have to say there's, there's multiple um, things, but one way of explaining that is that um, American consumer tastes are fickle um, and they shift um, as we enter new environments. But the other part of it is that these are different audiences as well. Um, so one element that even predates where you started that was when Captain America Comics number one comes out, um, it was polarizing. It was popular, but it was very polarizing because there were some people that did not like that messaging um, in punching Hitler. Um, and it was, you know, a year later when Pearl Harbor happens, we go to war and suddenly, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, well, now everybody's on board that right. that, you know, becomes even more popular. At the time, Timely Comics thinks of their audience for that book as GIs and kids. And this is such a strange marriage of market demographics, but it's, you know, um, it is our troops and it is our children, and we are telling the same mythology to both of them, but it's the war. And, you know, for people at home that are constantly reading these headlines and, and thinking about what's going on over there, reading stories about it is cathartic and it's empowering and, you know, it's really important. And then the war ends and all of a sudden Captain America becomes more of a cop. And, you know, is telling more social stories, trying to stay relevant when people don't really want to think about the war that is over, that they they're they're kind of trying to put it behind them. And that's kind of what happened in this 50s moment that you're um, that you're alluding to. You know, the adventures of Superman comes out and suddenly it looks like superheroes are back and it's big money. And so timely rolls out the human torch on a cover to say, look, we've got a Superman, too. And people didn't want the comics of that. They wanted television. And so those just bombed. I mean, they just never quite caught a readership. Um, There were only eight issues total, 16 stories. You know, it just didn't really resonate. And again, commie smasher didn't really signify Nazi to the new generation. The Cold War was just not the same war. And, And people didn't spend all their time thinking in these very propaganda-like jingoistic terms the way they had in the 40s. And in fact, it was kind of in poor taste to some people. Um, And and again, that's just that fickle um, changing of the guard. Um, But also think about the kids in 1940. When you get to 1954, they're not kids, so they're not reading these books. So we're trying to get the new kids, and it it just didn't work. Um, They had lightning in a bottle for about five years, and then it was kind of diminishing returns Mm -hmm. until the, you know, resurgence that came with the Silver Age and, and things like that. Television messed that up too. So yeah, yeah, yeah of course, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, you you, you talk about um, uh, the resurgence, right? So in uh, what is it, March nineteen sixty four, 
uh, Cap is back, right? Uh, they found him. Yay! And, uh, you know, he's in the Avengers. So then we, we start to see, you know, other appearances, Tales of Suspense. He comes out in his own book, The Man Out of Time. And then yep. we see another one of these sort of uh, these transitions on his, his evolutionary path, right? From the 60s, yeah. The Man Out of Time to what you call the, uh, uh, the liberal crusader uh, of the 70s. Right. And, uh, and, and essentially this sets him on the path to becoming, I think, what we could all agree and what others have characterized him as, as the moral center of the Marvel universe. Right. So can you tell us why, why do you think this, this transition happened um, yeah. and how it happened? And um, what's the enduring legacy of that, that, that first transition? Yeah. So, the, of course, as a fan what i want to say is you know marvel has tells great stories and but really it it comes down to markets again and it comes down to the popularity of certain stories certain books and what was really interesting in that era was that the avengers book was growing in popularity but captain america in his solo books wasn't first of all it was barely the same character um you know captain america in the Avengers books tends to be, once he gets past that initial moment, tends to be he's the leader. Um, I don't know if you remember, but he, um, you know, it was it was Captain America and three teenagers. That was the Avengers. And so you had these kind of generational conflicts between the greatest generation and the, um, you know, and the and the kids these days and, and how they're being superheroes. But in his own book, it was brooding and thinking about the war. It was Jack Kirby working some stuff out, um, trying to re, re, bring the 40 stories to the present. And finding for Bucky. Yeah, right. Constantly brooding for Bucky and constantly regretting those moments. And then, you know, the Red Skull and the sleepers and all of those things are happening. But Marvel Comics at that point is being read by mostly college students, um, and they figured that out from the letter columns that the college students were not really fond of Captain America's conservative greatest generation politics um, in some of the ways when he would fight the Red Skull and get very jingoistic and which I mean to in, to Jack Kirby's defense he's like oh, I created this character this is who he is I mean this is the whole point and mm -hmm. it's not matching up with the taste though of the college kids this move towards the liberal crusader frame is what I call it um, really comes when Jack Kirby leaves that book um, and all of a sudden Marvel starts putting some younger hipper countercultural kinds of writers like Steve Englehart people like that that are suddenly trying to think about what would a patriotic hero do when he confronts the politics of the new left and so he does this easy rider motorcycle tour across America he witnesses the riots at Berkeley he you know all these things that are just kind of touchstones of that era and he's changed by that. And that's really these younger writers trying to put their stamp um, on that. And that drew a lot of attention and suddenly kind of transformed him. He's also, you know, this is where the Falcon comes in and the Harlem race riots are a part of this equation. Um, but I do think it was chasing that readership. Um, it was trying to keep um, those loud voices coming from the college student readers somewhat happy or at least engaged when it looked like they were they were starting to become very dissatisfied hmm. right so that that brings us to because i think right now we're talking about the 70s right so yeah. for the most part and um so you're right you know the the different you had steve Engelhart come in uh that was a big 
big difference. And um, and then you have Roy Thomas, who who's an editor, uh, longtime writer on on the Avengers uh, and Innovators. So he's no stranger to Cap, right? Yeah. Uh, in fact, you know, Roy Thomas, when he, when he was growing up reading Cap, he, he had this love for the Golden Age tales. Um, so and that's why he was such so good at the Invaders. Um, but he 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 also when it came to the Invaders, he set this standard that Captain America doesn't kill. Right. And so how and why did that happen? Was it just a, a, a nod to the, you know, the comics code authority that was still going on at that time, you know, which was trying to prohibit this, this violence that, you know, in the silver and in the bronze ages, or, or is it more of that philosophical reason, you know, of, of trying to, look at the readership and say, okay, let's, let's move over some of Cap's golden age, rough edges and, and try to uh, appease to these, these new readers. Yeah. I, I think with Roy Thomas, it's more the latter Um, because right before that, when you have Jack Kirby do his origin, uh, do Captain America's origin, um, it is somewhat sanitized, but Captain America still kills the, Nazi agent. Um, and he does do some things. There are moments where he does. It's just severely. And I think that's the code where they're, you know, in my book, you know, that um, I count lots of things. It's all count up how many times Captain America killed people in different eras. And the 40s, he was very bloodthirsty um, just in the his actions. Uh, but when you get to the 60s um, in the 70s, you see it diminish, diminish, diminish. Um, but Roy Thomas First of all, The Invaders seems to me to be a, I want to make the World War II stories for kids specifically. And I want them to, so in other words, um, I want them to be able to know some of these stories that I knew, but that means I'm going to rewrite the way that those worked. And of course he added characters and in all kinds of the, the invaders is great stuff. Um, but it, it kind of reimagines um, all of that into more of a modern superhero epic. But the reason I think that probably this is a little bit more of his own sensibilities is when he gets around to writing his origin story for Captain America, he's the one that decides Captain America is a pacifist. Um, and that Captain America was an artist and that um, and the way that he did this with with this uh, big move was to say he was a pacifist artist. He was against the war until his now inserted brother died at Pearl Harbor. And that's why Steve Rogers goes to war. But in his heart of hearts, he does not kill. He doesn't want to kill. He doesn't want to use guns. He doesn't want to do any of that. He is doing this because he was forced to. And of course, some of that would later be changed by others, um, right. you know, but some of that stayed and, you know, became especially uh, poignant in the 80s where they started saying things like, you know, he had never killed and, and all of that. But I think that's Roy Thomas's stamp. I mean, he really did do a lot of the um, mythological underwork for Captain America. And I really think starting with what if number four, where he starts, here is how we make modern continuity work with Captain America in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and this you know and that became kind of the pattern for Marvel going forward in a way you could say he invented the new continuity model um, just in that what if exercise but um, but I think that's that is Roy's sensibilities he wants heroes 
that are the good guys. And they're going to be the good guys because they're not just extremely strong. They're extremely moral and they're extremely, you know, um, resistant to giving in to quick, violent solutions. Um, I think that's, that's his stamp. Yeah, I would agree with that. And I would also say uh, that was carried on, I think, in Mark Grunewald's run. Oh, totally. Oh, yeah. He, he took it to a, um, and we may talk about that separately, but um, he took that to a, that, what, that moment where the fans reacted to him saying Captain America had never shot anybody before and did finally in the 80s. And it becomes this big thing where he goes on te- national television to apologize for having used a gun. And right, readers were like, ah, uh, I've got all these comics. He yeah. used guns. I, I know he did. Um, but yeah, so Roy started that, but you're right. Um, it, it really did get, get amplified. Um, and that's what happens with these. One writer will make a change and suddenly just amplifies and becomes the new myth. Um, and then it just grows from there. That, I mean, that's, that's, I mean that, that really, that's a nice segue. Uh, um. Rick, because on, on several occasions in the book, you talk about this, this sort of tension, right, between the creative teams, which, and they change, I mean, sometimes rapidly, sometimes they're on for a long time, but, but sometimes there's pretty quick turnover, right? Um, I mean, Gary Friedrich wasn't, wasn't on the book very long, and yet he had a pretty substantial role making that transition from, from Lee's writing to, to Steve Englehart's. Right. Um, and so there's this the, the tension between the creative teams and the fandom, right? The, the fans' expectations, yeah. uh, particularly with characters that are very near and dear to them. So, I mean, this could be this can be really challenging, right? When you're trying to balance um, new readers with mm-hmm. the longstanding readers, because there can be yeah. different expectations. And, and you and, and you discuss this quite often in your book. And you know, you also, you make sort of the argument that like, it could be really challenging because we tend to um, find as normative, the books, you know, the creative teams, the the stories that we are first introduced to a character. Right. Right. Those become the norm for us and everything else is sort of a deviation from that. And so from generation to generation, you can have obviously different norms and we see the deviations very, very differently. So now, how is it that Marvel has been, I mean, pretty darn successful in, in managing these tensions for so long? Yeah, well, part of it, um, you know, I think that the, the question of looking at it the other side, which is how are they so not good at that now, um, is um, because of the, the changing loyalty of the market and, and you know, the, the, the intensity of it. But you're not wrong The the way in which they massage um, characters through these transitions, you know, you'll have this seminal experience um, with a character. And then even when they change something and they will change dramatically some things, usually with Captain America, it's when he stops being Captain America. Um, When he comes back to being Captain America, the way that rhetoric is gonna work is he's back, the legend is back. And I'm like, but if you pay attention, He's not the same Captain America that was wearing the cowl before he took it off. It, it's kind of like the the new Coke, Coke, Coke classic thing. Coke classic is not actually original Coke, but there was a transition in there because they use these um, disruptive moments and continuity to kind of bring people along. And they do lose um, readers sometimes, but if they gain more, it is a business at the end of the day. And, and especially when you're talking about those 70s and 80s moments, 
you know, that's that's when Marvel was coming into its heyday. Everything before that had been scratching and clawing, um, especially on this character. Um, and so there's this, um, again, the, the magic of comics, this way of bringing people along where even when they start to resist and hate something, so long as you find a formula that makes it make sense enough, then they'll hang on. Um, What's really interesting is is when you have an experience um, like mine or like um, I'm sure a lot of people's where you can go through a few transitions, then stop reading, and then coming back becomes very, very hard. Um, because in your mind, this character has been consistent. Um, we do that uh, every time I watch a political fight over Superman. That's what's going on. Is Somebody hasn't read Superman in two decades and just assumes they know who Superman is. And that's not who that character is anymore. And but 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 our nostalgia, our memory, our our social identity that gets wrapped up in these characters, that's what we tend to. That's what we're fighting about uh, yeah. most of the time. And I just think in the '60s, '70s, and '80s, it was a different um, era. We were more accepting of some of that as comics fans, I think. Um, but also, they were a lot more intentional about not taking hard left turns all the time um, on characters. It, you know, that used to be one of the jokes, right? Here's a character that's going to die, but we know they're not really going to die. This is all about mm. getting us to expect a big change, but it's really going to be status quo. Um, and I just think, you know, that formula eventually became actual change and people were a little less tolerant of that. I think Marvel has always chased new audiences in tried to keep as many of the existing readership but has always sacrificed the old for the new um and that's that's been what has led to the fragmentation of culture problem of today mm -hmm. um, we can't all agree on what we like about any of it because the the readership is too fragmented yeah we see a lot of that in our our facebook group uh so we have we have over four thousand captain america fans in the group so and they they we have some that just recently became fans because of the mcu yeah. uh we have some that you know go back to uh you know i you know i remember when when cap was you know introduced yeah. in avengers 4 i picked it up at the the local grocery store so um you know so there, there's the i think it goes back to what bob had said and you had had expanded on which is you know the one that we're introduced to the character is the one that is the right version and anything right. else is a, a deviation from that so that being said so for me i started reading cap in 1983 the 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 writer at the time was jm damateus yep. um so to me and i always tell people yes my favorite character is captain america but really honestly my favorite fictional character of all time is steve rogers and yeah. why is that and that's because damateus wrote him as someone who was more than just the, the costume and the shield. Right. right? So in, in chapter six of your book, you, you talk about the, the creative teams that begin to spend a lot more time exploring character development of Steve Rogers mm -hmm. and, and filling in a lot of the detail about his life, his, his relationships out of the uniform. So what do you think helped kind of precipitate this shift? Oh, yeah. Well, part of that, if you look around in pop culture, and, and this is part of what um, my orientation to media studies is about, is that none of this happens in a vacuum. 
Um, you know, people are, especially not Marvel Comics. I mean, Marvel Comics, you can always, you know, where did Iron Fist and Shang Chi come from? It's because Kung Fu movies were popular. Where did Luke Cage come from? Black exploitation. People start talking about surfing. We get the Silver Surfer. You know, there's this constant bubble of culture that's moving um, that we're seeing um, played out in pages. And I just think when we're talking about late 70s some, but man, in the 80s, um, especially the era you're talking about, um, you know, think about the films and the soap operas and the way that sitcoms were delving into personal lives. And I think that started to play out in Marvel Comics and not just for Steve Rogers. I mean, Steve Rogers goes from, you know, I mean, Bucky Bruder, who wants to be a cat, wants to be a cop, who decides he can't be a cop, who, you know, this very kind of superficial, should I be a shield agent or not, to suddenly having a building that he lives in with complex interactions and, you know, the pot, you know, the potluck and what should a guy from the 40s make for a potluck, you know, I mean, all these kind of like <laughs> domestic things. But that also matches what people were interested in in media at the time. Um, and so I, I think that's it's representative of its moment. But that having been said, it takes special writers to translate that um, into comics and to, and to make you care. It, you know, that 1983 moment is really great, um, but it's also right before Secret Wars, which right. is like this moment where Captain America gets solidified as, you know, he doesn't have powers, but he's the guy that yes. you're, you know, he's the grandpa superhero with all the moral certitude that's going to tell everybody how to be. And all that happened in the eighties because of Reagan, because of society, because of the way we were talking about interpersonal lives, we were feeling better about being Americans, but we were more interested in our consumerism. I mean, all of these things are changing at the same time. Um, and you've got great writers who are drawing from those trends and putting them into books and fleshing out these characters. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a testament to its time in a way. You know, you, uh, I think it was the same chapter. In fact, um, you talk about the right about that time, the, the shift toward uh, the direct market, right? The, the, the local oh, yeah. comic stands, the local comic stores, and, you know, the, 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 this burgeoning market for back issues. And, uh, and of course, uh, Marvel is really focusing on uh, servicing fandom. And so about this time, you start to see uh, things like the publication of the official handbook of the Marvel Universe right. and uh, Marvel Saga, and how important, you talk about how important sort of that move was to cementing some of these uh, continuity issues around who yeah. Cap is, right? Because until that time, there'd been a lot of different sort of tellings of Cap's origin, mm -hmm. right? And a lot of differences here and there, but, but there needed to be one sort of you know, core story, right? That yeah. this was this was the this was the lawful story, the normative story. Um, can you can you talk about that? Yeah, a little bit, how sure. important that was. And so those two books are both um, they're both different for different reasons. Um, you know, so the handbook to the Marvel Universe. Um, and see, when I came in, I'll date myself as I didn't read the first one; I read the second one, right? And that was like I think eighty five. So um, um, I was. My um, my most formative Captain America was in this 83, 84, you know, and on era. That's the one that I recognize the most. But part of that also is because of these handbooks. So if you think about these handbooks as the Marvel 
you know, character Bibles, um, that it's what their writers are using for the, the shared reference. And a lot of that stuff came from fandom, um, to be honest, like the first indexes that were published were actually fan products that Marvel then blessed and published. And that writers started saying, man, fans have all this worked out and we can just look up what when things happened and that started leading to these kind of um histories that were being written by characters marvel saga is a very interesting um problem it's basically marvel saying man we are more popular than ever but our readers are younger and they didn't read the old stuff they don't know where the fantastic four came from and i mean what are we going to do republish everything we've ever done over and over and so marvel saga is this a cut and paste book. I mean, it really does. It takes panels out of key moments in Marvel history, and then it has textual narrative under it. But it is a, it's designed to be, if you want to know what, what Marvel history is, read this. And, you know, that's going to catch you up. Now, having said that, they made a lot of editorial choices um, to put both all of these three, you know, the indexes, the handbook to the Marvel Universe and Marvel Saga together, um, because there has to be one history um, and these three have to kind of line up. But of course, that's really privileging the current moment. Um, so in other words, in many ways, if you read Captain America's history in the pages of the Marvel Handbook, it's really how do the writers wish Captain America's history actually had been all along, not what was it really. And that's the kind of continuity they're working with. But for a new reader, that becomes the authoritative history. So older fans can all, you know, in letter columns, point all they want to this moment in 1975, when this happened, new fans are like, well, it's not in the handbook. So it must not have been important. Um, and this history just keeps evolving and it kind of atomizes. So making official histories like that, it does more destruction to the publication history than it actually does, um, you know, create history. But it, what it does is it creates continuity and it creates a jumping on point um, and a reference guide that then becomes kind of the, um, you know, the, the trump card in any nerd fight, um, which is to say in the handbook, it says this. Um, so therefore that's what it was. And then when an older fan starts to argue about, no, I've read it in a different comic. Come on, man, get on board, right? There's a handbook. <laughs> the handbook, it tells you what it is. But that is, of course, serving the Marvel writers first and foremost, and their ability to tell modern stories in a coherent way. Right, right. Interesting. So, you know, when we, we talk about trying to retell these stories, a lot of times um, there are, alt, you know, very different alter, what's the right word I'm looking for? Uh, just al alternative histories, right? So sure. um, the term we use is retcon. Right? right. So and you use that in your book um, quite frequently. Um, and I and we, we talk about it sometimes during uh, our various uh, podcasts uh, where we, we bring up some of the, the retcon stories. But can for those who aren't familiar, can you explain sure. what you mean by this term? And then um, how it, how is it used by the different creative teams to to adapt a character like Captain America? And we talked a little bit about this, but I, I, I wanted to to get a little bit further into the sure. retcon theory. Yeah. So um, a retcon is a retroactive continuity tool. Um, and it's basically in narrative storytelling, it's a tool that is used to change the status quo in order for there to be more story. 
Um, so when I'm um, talking to people about um, you know, continuity and, and storytelling strategies, we talk about um, part of the American monomyth problem is what we call the tyranny of the serial, which means that the story can't end. Um, if the story ends, you make no money um, the next month. And so because there has to be more story and more money made next month, you can never quite close off these stories. There's never an end to them. But what that means is that whenever you do something significant with a character, you start writing yourself into corners. Um, and you start, every choice you make, you're taking other choices off the board that can be made later. Um, so when we have a retroactive continuity, it's a way of revisiting those earlier decisions and changing them to give more latitude for storytelling. Um, anybody who's watched Lost knows, man, that that whole story is about retcon, retcon. Ret we like we don't know where the show's going to go, so let's retcon a new character in, and suddenly we're going to take a new direction. With Captain America, you know, he has more than twenty different tellings of his origin story, and every one of them retcons a different element. Um, origin stories are an obvious place where that happens, and usually that happens when a new creative team comes on. And they're retelling the origin because they're communicating to the audience, this is my take on Captain America. These are the kinds of stories you can expect from me. But also I'm tweaking some things that are going to help me tie what's happening now back to his origin, which actually changes his origin. Um, and so the character will go through these gradual shifts in order to let the new creative team tell a new kind of Captain America story that the old creative team had never envisioned, um, but they need something. You know, Roy, the, the one that always jumps to my mind is Roy Thomas needs Steve Rogers to have a brother. And that's, mm -hmm. so for a little while, Captain America had a brother, a dead brother. And then all of a sudden that went away. Um, yeah, until Roger that, Stern got a hold of it. Yes. Right. And then we just kind of, you know, we'll retcon back to that was a fever dream that didn't happen, right? And and that's okay. Readers will accept that as long as the storytelling is good and it matches, it makes the current story work. Um, but it's it's used in movie series, television series, um, novels. Um, it's what just, it's kind of the lubricant that makes old stories become new again without having to start over. Um, it's a continuation um, lubricant. You and I seem to have started reading Cap around the same time, right? So J.M. DeMatteis uh, was the, the writer at the time, and and he certainly did some of what you just explained, right? He he brings back Arnie Roth, or I'm sorry, right. introduces Arnie Roth, right. who was right. a childhood friend. Right. Uh, he takes um, uh, Helmut Zemo, who who died, right, uh, as the Phoenix, and brings him back as right. as uh, Baron Zemo. Um, so he he did a lot of that. Did you did you have any I don't know um, particular stories that were retcom uh, during Cap's evolving characterization that that perhaps you know you enjoyed or were important to you? Oh yeah, and and I'll I'll specify that enjoyed and are important are two very different categories. For me. <laughs> Good point. Yeah, <laughs> which is um, so because the first one I'm going to talk about is um, you know the the constant retconning around Samuel Wilson and the attempts to try to repair the damage um, that had been done to him in the seventies. Um, that all happened before I started reading, but it's one of the things that led me back to earlier comics because I was trying to figure out 
um, you know, what's going on with this character? And, and there was a little bit of me that was like, why are they trying so hard? I mean, <laughs> they really are trying hard to, to make this particular character be some things. He had his own series. Um, it, it, I don't know if you remember what was going on in the Avengers at that point, but he was added to the Avengers through an affirmative action policy yeah. by the government. And Hawkeye was mad about that because he is the white Avenger got displaced and, you know, all of those politics. And I was still a little too young to quite grasp why all of that was socially important. Um, but those were some of the important um, pieces. I really liked um, during that run, you know, Steve Rogers' relationship with Bernie. I, the, the Arnie Roth was really interesting to me that we were going to have this exploration of a gay character in a time when that was not talked about. And we just weren't going to really bring that out. But that was, again, that, that kind of personalness of him which when I would go back and read earlier stories, I'd be like, this doesn't make sense. It doesn't, you know, where, where is he um, coming from? But the, probably the biggest retcon that I enjoyed the most was when 50s Bucky comes back as Nomad, um, yeah. you know, and suddenly becomes his sidekick. And for me, Captain America Nomad, after I had known that Cap had been Nomad, right? I mean, that was just such a cool um you know set of relationships and 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 storytelling pieces i that is one of the things that was so disappointing in the brewmaker run was the killing of that character but that's only because i had nostalgia right that was wrapped up in it so it made sense why you had to do that that's a big point of contention in in the facebook group uh whenever we talk about brewbaker you know uh everybody everybody consistently always says you know seminal volume it's an amazing story it's all agreed upon but yeah why did you have to kill jack monroe yeah uh so so there's that yeah well i get i mean this is you know again putting on my narrative hat um because what do you do with jack monroe out there when cap and bucky are having that dance i mean it becomes this really awkward kind of third wheel and um and it's also symbolic uh, of you know bucky how much he was willing to hurt cap and you know all of these things that were happening in there but at the same time man that was a gut punch uh you know yeah. and i i don't think i've ever really gotten over that part i'm 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 with you on the on the sentiment for it yeah it's a great story um and, and i'm glad you brought up the falcon too because um we actually covered that um in uh, episode 14, which was the oh, origin yeah. of the Falcon. And we actually went through the introduction of the Falcon. And then when uh, Steve Englehart retconned it, and then DeMatteis uh, basically re-retconned it uh, right. because of the whole, um, uh, gosh, what, what did they refer to him as? Um, who was the, the bad Sam Wilson? It was uh, Snap. 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 Nah, yeah. The drug, yeah. Yeah. The pimp uh, drug dealer. Yeah. Right. And and that never set well with uh DeMatteis. Um oh, and it then, killed the character too for the audience at the time. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. And then I think what Nick Spencer retconned it again recently in the last five years to say that never happened, that he was never snap. Uh right. you know, so it's funny. It all comes back to what you what you said, Rick, is in and that is, you know, the writer. Mm-hmm you know, to the times, to the audience is going to, you know, shape the story to fit. Right. Yeah. And, and part of that is the environment in which they are 
writing. Um, I don't I don't know how far you want to get into um, Nick Spencer's treatment of the character, but there's certain kinds of stories he wants to tell. And to do that, he has to reposition not just Falcon, but also Steve Rogers and, and a few other um, core characters in order to catch that political moment, um, which went completely sideways on him and, you know, he kind of lost control of, but all of them, it, it kind of illustrates, this is the paradox of being a comics writer where you want to have a contemporary voice and you want to talk about um, contemporary politics and historic moments that are happening right in front of you, but your characters weren't set up to do that. Um, and so then you wind up tweaking them in some ways, not in popular ways. Um, sometimes you get away with it and sometimes they don't. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I, we're going to switch gears a little bit, um, sure. but, but you've touched on this a little bit uh, with your, your discussion of the Nick Spencer uh, run. Um, so, you know, Cap has been taken to task a number of times over the, gosh, decades, right, for yeah. for patriotism, right? He's either he's either a, a blindly a patriot or he's not patriotic enough. And, you know, you uh, I, before you publish the book, you publish the article in the Journal of Popular Culture, and you talk about this in the book as well, about right. that letter writing controversy, the rap with Cap oh, yeah. letter writing controversy that took place over, what, six years, right? And um, there was this struggle to sort of get their hands around what, what does patriotism mean with right. respect to Captain America, right? And there was the fans were in on that, the creative teams were in on that, and um, you know, were these just are these disputes just a, like oh, you can't please you know everyone all the time sort of thing, or is there something else going on here that I we can learn from that episode? Yeah, no, I think there's there's more um, going on there in in my head, and I know if I say it the way I think it. I'm going to say it anyway. I'm going to make some people mad. Um, I always think of that that six-year letter fight as a little bit of, in my head, I have it under a category called the education of Jack Kirby. Um, but I know that makes people angry when they think about it because that started with some of Jack Kirby's portrayals um, of patriotism. It is more than just you can't please everyone. It's this moment where you've got college readers um, who are now writing in and saying things like, why isn't Captain America in Vietnam? Um, and how can Captain America be expressing these values and be letting this Vietnam draft happen and letting all of this injustice that we're seeing happen in, in you know, racial injustice, uh, you know, all of these, um, you know, these, the riots um, that are occurring. And you know, it starts off there, and I think that kind of caught the Marvel team by surprise how serious, how fervent, and how long it went. Um, but you're right, it's this really interesting construction um, that I think is educating everybody involved that when you just say patriotism and you just talk about it, this is, a, again, what I'm going to call a socially constructed value. It exists in a moment, and people in that moment recognize it and connect to it. But that doesn't mean it's the same thing in the next moment. It's constantly moving and, and how you apply it and think about it um, can change. So for example, do we feel that fighting for your country is good is a different question than do you feel like all citizens are treated the same? And depending on how you frame that question and then you throw the word patriotism in there, people depending on their own social identities and politics are gonna have very different reactions to it and they're gonna fight um, about it. The letter column 
fight, um, like you said, it lasted for six years. Um, I think it led to editorial changes in the book. And that's why it's so significant. Comics have always been closer to their audience than say movies or TV series. Um, and so you can kind of see that in the midst of that, I'm not, I'm not saying that the letter fight is what got Jack Kirby kicked off of Captain America, but he did leave. And suddenly these new creators came in that were more progressive and suddenly Captain America's direction changed. And that was, I think, in response to the articulated arguments that are happening in this book by the, by the college students. Now, Jack Kirby came back to the book after that. It's not like I'm saying he lost it or, or anything um, like that, but it just goes to show that in these times of cultural stress, like during the Vietnam War, during civil rights, during all of these things happening in this very short amount of time, uh, people's identity gets identities get wrapped up in these narratives and they don't feel the same about them. And they're more likely to argue about, you know, how can we be great if my friend was killed and if, you know, there's still racism and I'm not being treated well and all of these things. And that just, these are the kind of cultural conversations, I think, that lead to the next wave of culture and, and understanding. Um, but it was just fascinating to see that play out um, almost every single issue for six years in the letters pages. It's what bulletin boards and, and Facebook are today. But back mm -hmm. then, it was just played out around a comic character. It was just fascinating. Right. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think, I mean, the, the three of us, and, and of course, the listeners, We've seen we've seen that exact same conversation come up again uh, yep. when in the uh, in volume four, right? Yep. Uh, yep. We we saw it come, we saw it come up again with the assassination of Cap, and we we saw it oh, just yeah. come up again recently. So this is a this is sort of a perennial conversation. So it's yeah. interesting. One of the other things that um, I find really interesting um, is you talk about how Cap sort of eventually, because of the the weight he takes on as the moral center of the, of the Marvel universe. He, he starts to have this ability to, uh, to almost confer his endorsement on, on other characters that may be perceived as somewhat controversial um, by readers. So not only is he, you know, he's, he's got this weight of authority in the book, but he's, you know, extra authority outside of the book to, to the readership themselves, the fandom. And you, right. and you, and you bring up a couple examples, for example, you, you bring up um, Carol Danvers when she uh, assumes um the mantle of, of, of Captain Marvel. Mm -hmm. And, and again, when he hands the shield over to, to Sam, well, when Sam right. becomes Captain America, and these were two somewhat controversial um, character choices uh, right. in the storyline, but Cap's moral authority was used to confer an endorsement. Right. Uh, yeah. And I, that, I find that really fascinating. I don't know if you, could you comment on that a little bit? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and to tease out a little bit, the, um, the, the Captain Marvel, Carol Danvers, thing was so strategic um, and really smart. They knew that the moment they called Carol Danvers Captain Marvel, there were going to be some people that were saying, how dare you? And, you know, what do you think you're doing? And just by narratively having Captain America be the one to convince her, she doesn't, again, she has her own monomyth going on around this name. And, you know, Captain America is having to talk her into it and convince her and finally does so that it also sets up this kind of, well, if you're upset about this, argue with Cap. Don't argue with Carol. Um, she didn't want to do it. Captain America made her do it. Your problem's with Steve Rogers, you know, so take it out on him. Um, but that's a, and, and especially with the Sam thing, it's like whenever they get to a moment where 
they want to take these stories into these controversial eras uh, areas. His his opinion just does carry that weight, even though these are all artificial characters. You can make any one of these characters say anything, but that the significance of it um, just it has different weight from different characters, and that's why it's important. You know, people complain about. You know, why are there two Spider-Men and why were there two Thors and why were there two Iron Men and why were, you know, and and that's it it is important to have the legacies passed down, but also that kind of endorsement to let these characters have those connections and room, um, you know, to at least try to shoulder you know, that, that challenge and that struggle. And then, you know, it's comics. If you don't like it and it doesn't sell, they will change it. That's the one thing we know that's going to happen. Um, so, right. you, know. <laughs> yeah. you know, it's funny, uh, talking about cap and endorsing, right. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and why is that? Well, that's because everybody seems to look up to cap. Right. I mean, he, he right. has this moral uh, authority. Um, he is, you know, for the, the center of the Marvel universe. And, um, you know, it's interesting. So speaking of looking up to Cap, you know, um, in the Civil War story, everybody kind of looked up to Cap. Well, not everybody, uh, but, you know, yeah, he, there was two sides, obviously. Right? right. But one character that was torn was Peter Parker. And yeah. he really looked up to Steve Rogers. And um, so there's a there's a, uh, a a big speech in in around that time. It was an Amazing yeah. Spider-Man 537, uh, which came out in 2006. Uh, 2006. And it's a speech where uh, Cap is talking to Spider-Man, and he says it, it, it's off of um, Mark Twain's commentary, right. Right? right? And it builds off of that. And and it, it, he says, when the mob and the press and the whole world tell you to move. Your job is to plant yourself like a tree besides the river of truth right. and tell the whole world, no, no, you move. Yeah. And, you know, Bob and I talk about how Captain America is like a mirror, right? Because different people see different things when looking at him, you yep. know, and and so most people in our in our Facebook group, like I said, we have 4000 Cap fans love that speech it's one of one of their favorites yeah i'm <laughs> i'm one of those guys who who look at that speech and i and i say you know i i don't i don't love the speech because dr doom could be listening to that and say you're yeah. right cap yeah. Yeah, yeah i i need to plant myself and and, and stick to my guns the punisher could be looking at yeah. him and say that the red skull could be looking at you know so i don't know you know we have many different types of captain yeah. america fans and none of us are better than others or right or wrong sure. right you have those who uh who maybe are like you and me and grew up on Mateus and, and love steve rogers and and yeah. and maybe you know that type of you have those who maybe hey commie smasher excellent that's my cap or ultimate captain america so what do you think of this particular quote that is so endeared yeah. to many captain america fans and how does it, how do you face it so let me so let me tease it out because i'm going to um agree with you and then i'm going to turn and set it in its um in, in its place of what um you know the the character motivation so one of the things that you're saying um you know we do have this problem because 
those of us that are Americans think all think we're a good American. And so when we look at Captain America and like something about him, our view, if that gets challenged, it's not just is Captain America the way I want him to be. It's also says something about my social identity. It also says something about my my view of Americanhood. I mean, these are big, weighty things that are being called into question, which is why I think people get a lot more anxious um, over Captain America than, say, Spider-Man, um, who, you know, just the, the, all that extra layering of, of culture and, um, and patriotism on there. That particular scene and that um, speech, which I kind of agree with you, what it does is it makes it hard to think, man, this guy must have never, how could this guy have been in the military? How could that have ever, how could he have ever been a soldier and think this? Like, there's no way I can, I can wear that, except I can, you know, okay, fine. I follow him through the eighties. I get to the point where he turns in the shield because he doesn't trust the government. Like I'm no longer going to be a soldier. I'm going to be something else, but that's the, that's a little bit of Captain America's um, uncomfortableness, which is that, He's a symbol for the nation, but he isn't going to follow the command structure, and yet he's going to have an authority over it. And it's just, it's a very uncomfortable. It, it doesn't make any sense if you think about it too long. That scene, though, is something I almost want to say. The the justification for that scene is that's what a kind of libertarian bent leader of a resistance against the government has to say. That's what he has to say. That like he mm-hmm. has to be the I get moral authority out of being right when the structure and society and everybody is wrong because, you know, that's like the perfect embodiment. And that's why that's such a popular quote. And, and people have that on, you know, post that on, on social media and it, they awkwardly worked it into the film and, you know, all of those, all of those pieces, but you're not wrong. It really does in a sense violate his history and his kind of placement as having been a part of a structure that believes if America's good and the military's good, then I do what I'm told. And I trust it to get to this moment where he is saying what Mark Twain said, which was the opposite of that. Um, Civil War. Civil War is a very, you know, Captain America isn't acting like Captain America. Tony Stark is not acting like Tony Stark. They, they, they're kind of avatars that are put into this cultural conflict in order, you know, to embody the, you know, neoliberal fascist state and, you know, approach to security and, you know, the kind of libertarian resistance to that. And all of these characters get bent out of shape, um, trying to get these statements made. So in one sense, I'm saying I, I do agree with you. I like that statement as a representation of that moment. Um, I would have more problem with Captain America saying that today um, than I did in 2006 when they fed him that. Um, but that's only because I, I'm looking at how this character keeps getting made and unmade. That was the Captain America that Civil War narrative needed to make sense, even though Civil War, which is great in terms of its allegory, is a little bit nonsense if you look at it too close, um, what it does with characters. Now, Spider-Man in that narrative is kind of the avatar of the American people. Like, I mean, I I always think of that issue where you have Spider-Man and everybody's grabbing his arms and legs and pulling him. 
And I'm like, that's he's supposed to be the metaphor of this is the American people. They're pulled toward security early because what Tony Stark tells me about who I should be, all that is so reinforcing. It makes me feel safe. I get to be the better version of Spider-Man with my iron spider suit and all of this stuff. And then I see the consequences, you know, for other people and Captain America gives a big speech and all of a sudden that, that speech is also the turning point for, you know, Spider-Man. He comes to that group, you know, bloodied and broken, but that speech is, you know, basically the kind of Peter Parker sitting down and saying, Cap, tell me a story, you know, tell me why this is okay, because it doesn't feel okay either. And then he gets this speech. And then I think what wasn't his comment after that, can I carry your lunchbox? You know, I mean, it was like this big, you know, kind of transition moment. So I like that quote and that moment, but it's because they were that moment. Um, Otherwise, leave that moment. And I'm right there with you. It's a very uncap like thing to say. Um, you know, it's interesting, too, because I, I'd never really thought of it the way you said that Peter Parker was more like the American people. Right. You know, and, and mm-hmm. I, I like that because I I always thought of him more as looking as Cap as a father figure. Right. Because he, he looked at Tony as a father figure. But yeah, at that right. moment, that moment, and especially the way the artist Ron Garney drew him. Yeah. Was Cap standing at the high yeah. and, and Peter Parker down low looking right. up at him. Yeah. You know, it was it was kind of more like that father figure. But I like I like your analogy there about uh, American people. And Bob, um, we're going to save this so that the next time uh, this comes up in the Facebook, group, <laughs> I can quote and say, yeah, quote. Dr. Steven said I wasn't wrong. Quote, no, you're not wrong. Well, I know he's in the he's in the group. So uh, let me give you let me give you let me give you a piece on that. So for all of the great power that comes out of that quote, right? Go to the end of Civil War, right? What happens, you know, Captain America is sitting on Iron Man's chest about to kill him. And then he's tackled by this perfect complement of first responders, right? You've you've got a policeman and an EMT and a firefighter. Like they tackle him and they shock him into looking around at all the damage the superheroes are doing. And that's when he starts crying, takes off his mask, turns himself in. That's the anti-Mark Twain moment. Mm -hmm. That is the, I said that, but I'm wrong. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm surrendering. So if you think of it that way, that that's not the culmination of who Captain America is. It's a moment. And, and I, you know, we all add head cannon to these stories. And in my head cannon, a little bit's in there. This is a very frustrated Captain America. Like he oh, feels yeah. like he's in a corner. He can't, doesn't know who he can trust. He's working with super villains. There was the whole thing with the Punisher, which I thought was hilarious but also great you know he, he brings super villains to the table and the punisher shoots them all and then he gets really angry you know <laughs> and starts beating up the punisher but the punisher is also like because the punisher has that one moment where he's like what <laughs> like you know <laughs> what was i supposed to do it's super villains right and um but it's like cap is not cap he is so far from his own moral center that he's doing things that are very unlike him and i do think it's that end of civil war that snaps him back and, yes. and makes him realize he had gone too far. He was too excessive. He had to surrender. Um, and then of course they assassinated him and started all mm-hmm. over. So, you know, but so, so there you're, you're not wrong. It's a very uncap like thing, but in the narrative, you can also say 
he was pushed to say that very powerful thing. And I think he recants it when he turns himself in. I mean, that's a way to read it. You know what? I will take the quote, Rick, you're not wrong. Rick's, Rick, <laughs> you know, for, for, listeners can't see right now, but Rick Verbanis is glowing. Okay. <laughs> He's got a glow about him. He didn't say I was right, but, but Darty did say, he said, you're not wrong. I'll, I'll right. take it. But I'll say the other part is we're all desperately looking into these moments and projecting things into them because of what our view of who these characters are supposed to be. And frankly, our orientation at 9-11, our orientation to the security state, all of those things come to play. And even when a character that we really like says something that we don't like, we don't feel comfortable with it. And that's very normal. Um, and, And frankly, that's why I say Civil War, as awkward as it is in butchering certain characters who are very out of character temporarily, it made people talk It made them, you know, think. And, you know, like, like I pointed out when, when Captain America was assassinated, if you looked at the New York times comment field, it was fantastically divided. Um, You had, um, you know, Captain America's on the front page of the New York times on the web and all the comments are, you know, conservative people saying, of course, this progressive company kills a patriot during a time of war. That's what liberals do, right? They're, they always sell out America. But then you've got liberals saying, this is what happens when George Bush is president, right? I mean, it's like everybody's projecting their own stuff into these moments, trying to orient themselves into their reactions. And so, of course, we're going to argue and fight about it. This is big stuff. Um, it's almost like, you know, any day of the week here now. Right. (laughs) Right. No, we are definitely in a special argumentative era. So, yeah. All right. So we talked a little bit about Sam Wilson. Um, So we talked about, you know, how there are different retcons that were going on uh, with the character. Um, And so you you talk in your book um, about Sam Wilson and how there was this marginalization of him. Um, Yeah. of course, you know, in the 70s, as you mentioned, right, there's, you know, he's in the heyday and um, and then in the 80s, not so much. Right. Um, so with what's been going on recently, uh, are you surprised about how popular Sam has become in in the comics and in, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Because um, obviously, you know, there's been a lot going on with the, the Disney Plus series and so on. Sure. Um, so. Um, some of my answers are never going to be as clean as you want them to be. So part of me wants to say yes, um, but my surprise is that that was a Herculean lift um, to get that to happen. And I never thought it would. But then there's another part of me that is um, no, because they did that lift. They really did some work. So let me say a few things about, um, you know, what we're talking about. I mean, you've you've illustrated his history this idea that the first African-American superhero who had so much goodwill coming his way gets retconned into, you know, this street thug that was a Red Skull plant to betray Captain America. I mean, I, you know, you saw in the letter columns, you know, people just like, I cannot believe you did that. Like, I, you know, how did you take this good moment and turn it into an even worse stereotype? Um, mm-hmm. that had existed before, that the only way an African-American can be a superhero is if the Red Skull wants to trick Captain America. 
and makes him want to believe that this is possible. But of course, it's not because black people can't do that. I mean, it's just such a terrible set of messages. And then you see Sam Wilson bubble up over and over, but they can't. I mean, they just tried really hard to make him work. The key to making Sam Wilson work, I think, really is the Ultimates, um, because the version that we see in the MCU bears much more of a resemblance to the Ultimate version, um, who was a veteran, who was a you know secret agent, who um, you know had military training and prowess and all of that. Um, it kind of sidesteps the whole social worker. Um, you know, snap persona um, equation altogether. Uh, but that's something else I'd said in, in, the, in the book is that the ultimates for a lot of these characters was working out mostly aesthetics and trying to orient towards what would this look like on the screen. But I think for um, the Sam Wilson character, it reinvented a completely different backstory and set of relationships that the screen just aped off of, and therefore they sidestep. They did that. They did that with a few other characters, but that one in particular um, is great. And that configuration was great, and it let Sam Wilson be free of all of that controversy. And then after that, I'm like, well, that's why the character was popular in the first place. It is a great character. I mean, it really, you know, he was. And um, and so I'm really glad they managed. Um, to do that. Um, the MCU has been a minefield of how do we bring the wasp to the screen when everybody's going to start talking about domestic violence the moment we do? How mm-hmm. do we bring Carol Danvers to the screen when people are going to talk about rape and alcoholism as soon as we do? How do we bring, you know, and it sadly is most of the minority and female characters, like every Marvel character has a flaw, but the minority and female characters get these really terrible flaws that are just terrible to deal with. And I think those, you know, House of M, Ultimates, those kind of alternate storytelling attempts really massaged a lot of those characters. Um, So I'm really glad they did that. Um, Once you free Sam Wilson of all that, make him a veteran, bring him into, you know, a Captain America space as more of an equal um, than Snap, had been um that's where he gets to shine and and so let me say i'm pleasantly surprised um that that happened and really really grateful that they that they did that work um because yeah if you told me 20 years ago that the falcon was going to be captain america's like he was but nobody cared and it's you know not, not mm-hmm. that, but. right yeah yeah um yeah, we're, we're wrapping down, but I, I got to ask you this question. And I don't know, have you been following a, a, any of the new sort of stories, lines that are coming out? And so you, know, you, oh, yeah. you, talk, you talk about in the book, and we've talked about tonight, how sure. there seems to be certain times when um, when Cap's characterization really comes under scrutiny. And and you, I think you argue that it, it generally tends to be when America's cultural values are, are, are under scrutiny, right. right? And there's some tension there. And so, you know, I know um, there, there's this new series. We reviewed issue one just recently, uh, The United States of Captain America. Yeah. And there was this, yeah. once again, a, a sort of a debate, you know, in the media over whether Cap believes in the American dream or not, right? And so it's like nothing, nothing new uh, is actually new. Everything that was old is new right, again right, sort right. of thing, right? And so, um, like, I, I'd be curious your thoughts on on this controversy again and, and why oh, we yeah. keep returning to this and, and 
what would your book have to say about it? Yeah. So yeah, if I if I were writing today and thinking about the controversy, and I I do study fan culture. I'm always interested in how fans talk. Um, that's a really um, important interest interest of mine. I've been. Um, I guess I shouldn't be at this time, but at, at this point, but I but I am surprised how many times Captain America's monologues or internal thinking becomes the debate. Like this guy never gets to think about things. I mean, you know, there's, there's kind of a funny, um, you know, moment about that where this isn't like him addressing Congress. This is him thinking about his own place and coming up with these um, ideals. And I get why, you know, it, it's polarizing and, and frustrating for people but in a in a sense, when I read um, some of those thoughts in that book, and keeping in mind, this whole series is Captain America on another motorcycle journey. He is literally doing the thing where he is growing and learning and finding new experiences. So where he starts is not going to be where he ends. That is the whole point of the motorcycle journey, right? So right. he's starting in a dark place, but his dark place is, I think... I don't know. I've read it as um, he's got a lot of Lincoln in him where he's like, we need to be better. You know, it's like, we, we say this, we need to improve. We're always trying to be better. Um, but he just says it very in his very dejected, dark place. I mean, where he's coming from, right. Out of the previous run, he's struggling with these kinds of questions. Um, but I also think having read his journey in the seventies, how does a character who stands in the middle of the Harlem race riots, how does he react to 2021 when he's watching some of this happen? You know, in a very real sense, there, I'm kind of amazed at this point that, you know, <laughs> Captain America's not in therapy all the time, you know, <laughs> just over the lack of, yeah. of social progress, you know, in some ways, only because he has asked these questions decades ago and uh, i can't imagine what that weight is on him so i look at those moments personally and i see him thinking about it obviously the writers have certain considerations they're trying to put in his mouth um to speak into this moment and and i'm you know never ignorant of that but watching people react to it i i just see it as as him always in the same struggle he is which is he has this belief in this dream he sees the reality as a man at a time he's always disappointed with the modern um because it doesn't live up to what he thinks it should be and that sometimes leads him to be very harsh in what he's seeing but i also think that's part of this discovery of finding i don't know i feel like he's dejected and he's encountering other captains america and each one is like, gotta be for him. They haven't really articulated this, but it's gotta be towards the end of this book. Like, wow, other people believe in the dream and are living out these situations that I, at the beginning of this series say is horrible, but I'm watching people make it work, you know, and watching them grab onto these ideals and to make their communities and other people's lives better how is that not the best expression of the dream? And I don't know where the series is going, but I really hope that's the trajectory, you know, is that these um, other characters that he's running into are 
cheering him up <laughs> yeah. or giving him something to believe in again, which is what he is doing, inspiring everybody. Who inspires Captain America? Captain's America, right? And so I, I didn't, I personally didn't react as strongly as I saw other people, but it was fascinating to watch them do that. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and we, we love having the conversation uh, with people on the, in the Facebook group, because um, there's so many different opinions on it, but I, I love your, your take in, in the fact that cap starting at a dark place mm-hmm. and, and to, to your point, you know, uh, as any of these stories have gone where he's been on a motorcycle and traveled across the country, right. Where he, where he ends up is not where he starts. And, um, and the fact that he needs to be cheered up because yeah, after decades of seeing something that, you know, uh, who else is going to be, I mean, it could, it could weigh on someone. Right. Yeah. So, and I think you're right. That's, that's where he's at in this point. So, uh, you know, like, oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, I always think of like certain symbols, like the shield means certain things, you know, and we have all this stuff wrapped right up. The motorcycle, it's like the motorcycle is Cap's thinking machine. I mean, it just is like he's on the motorcycle. He's going to think about some things, you know, on that quiet, you know, yeah. although it always cracks me up in those stories when he's riding along talking to somebody and I'm like, I've never seen some people <laughs> on a motorcycle just talking to each other while they're riding, but apparently that's his superpower, right? Is to right. also have cultural conversation on this thinking machine that he's on. Right, right. Yes, and, he, and, and he is a super bike that's ultra quiet. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, so tell us, uh, Rick, what's, what's next for you? What, what else do you have on the horizon? Oh, well, and... So I study lots of um, lots of things related to fan culture. I have a book I've been writing for a while um, that's um, looking at um, Hasbro um, and mm. particularly the Hasbro Marvel FCC Sunbow connection in the 80s that led to a lot of the hyper commercialism around um, toy culture and you know and of course. Secret Wars is a part of that as his superpowers and, and all of that. But I've just been really interested in that moment of deregulation when suddenly we saw this explosion of culture and, you know, and how that that kind of imprinted. So that's kind of a, a, a long a project. I've been asked um, to write a Captain Marvel book and mm. um, because I can't say no to great opportunities, <laughs> I'm starting that, but I can't promise when that's going to get done because that keeps growing on me i mean that's right yeah that's a character who both has this history that's not quite as long as caps but she's been through more changes than he has um really when you start looking at all the different eras and all the different moves um and i'm i don't know i'm 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 interested in those things and then of course i'm also writing articles i just published a, a book chapter on Superman smashes the clan and yeah. uh, you know that uh, graphic novel take on the 1946 um, radio series yeah there's there's stuff I, I see happen and I'm really interested in adaptation when people are changing media with a property and how they have to change the the character to make that work and then of course the fan reactions to that is just a gold mine for me mm-hmm. um watching how because what people are really arguing about in those moments whether it be snake eyes and the way they don't like the way he looks or he-man this last week has been really interesting yeah. to watch or all of that they're arguing about their own social identity and what they've connected and invested in these properties and 
why they want culture to work certain ways, um, what it says about them, in other words, what their tastes are. And so I'm just really interested in, in, in projects like that. But um, right now I've got two books going that won't be finished this year. So, <laughs> okay. Well, Hasbro one will be out sooner. Uh, do I'm you hoping, have a working yes. title? Um, Transforming Culture. Um, okay. is the short title. And then the longer one, you know, of course, it's mostly about G.I. Joe and Transformers. It's, you yeah, know, it's a nice broken. play on word. Yeah. I know. I like that. That's I, good. I, I do. It's a good working title. I got that reference. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I got that. Cap line. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, when you told me about the Captain Marvel book uh, and, and the different iterations that she's go- gone through, um, I, I tried to come up with some sort of play on words with binary, but I, I, oh, yeah. I couldn't come up with anything. Uh, it was too duplicative. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> oh okay. Yeah. <laughs> Rick's yeah, getting, getting punched drunk. So I had uh, a, I had a fun punny moment when one of my, um, one of my non-binary friends was struggling over that new Walgreens exclusive figure saying, this is the one figure I can't buy because I'm not binary. He was, you know, being punny. And I was like, does it help you to know that that was just a phase, right? (laughs) That was her binary phase and she moved past it. But um, no, I find that character fascinating in different ways than, than Captain America, only because um, the idea that, you know, Marvel comics, just like they were doing with, Hey, kung fu movies are in so let's make some kung fu heroes they said hey gloria steinem and wonder woman that was a thing let's make a feminist book and it was so awkwardly done um Mm -hmm. in the beginning and every time the mostly male marvel writers put their hands on it with the exception of chris claremont um really bad things have happened um (laughs) to that character and for that character and then you have chris claremont constantly stepping in and yelling at people to leave his character alone and you know and and grabbing her but um i i find all of that that fascinating you know what does it mean when um certain people get to decide what you know they think a gender looks like um and how a lot of other people say no <laughs> that's not good um but same same thing with captain america what does patriotism look like what does masculinity look like mm-hmm. what you know how should good americans act um and then a writer the next writer does something different that's a paradox um and i'm just constantly fascinated with the way that mechanism works um in our cultural system well, can't wait to hear your take on Avengers 200. <laughs> I, right. I have a take if you want to hear it, but I, but we can save that for another time. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll definitely do that another time. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Thank you for coming on. I highly recommend to to all of our get, uh, listeners to um, to check out his book, Captain America, Masculinity and Violence. Um, it, it's a it's a great it's a great read, um, and, and and certainly. Uh, we touched a, a little bit on it here, but, um, you know, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure having you. Oh, thanks for having me. This is fun. Okay. Well, that was a great conversation with Dr. Stevens, and we, uh, we're, we're very uh, appreciative to have him on the show. Um, I had a good time talking with him. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, Rick, I, I, I know this is uh, a lot of this is uh, can be a little bit cerebral, right? A little bit... Uh, Academic, but I, I mean, I think this is fascinating, right? This sort of intersection between uh, just the comic book and sort of the deeper meanings of popular culture and what 
popular culture says about society and culture and values and morality. Um, I mean, to me, this is this is great stuff. So I hope um, I hope the listeners enjoyed uh, the interview and got some ideas out of it, maybe thought a little bit, you know, or prompted to think some more about this after. And uh, would love to hear some feedback on what you thought about it. Yeah, I think our listeners can handle the cerebral. I think our listeners uh, certainly appreciate uh, the, the sometimes philosophical discussions that we have, Bob. Yeah, well, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, so coming up next episode, uh, which is going to be episode 48, um, we're going to get into a top 10 list. We haven't done a top 10 list. In, gosh. Um, and we're talking eight months since we've done a top top ten list. Um, yeah, seems and, like it. Yeah, and so Bob, it's going to be an idea you came up with, which I love, and that is um, the top ten origin differences of Captain mm-hmm. America, right? Because there, as we talked a little bit with Doctor Stevens about retcons and and how that has happened over the years, right? Um, this, uh, you know, the, the Cap's origin has changed a little subtly here and subtly there um, over his 80-year history. So um, we're going to be talking about our favorite top 10 origin differences. Yeah, this is this is uh, I, I'm I'm really looking forward to this one, Rick, because yeah, there's a lot of the the differences that I think are are obvious, you know, um, but some are not so obvious, right? Some are a little more uh, nuanced, maybe, or uh, a little a little less superficial, and I think it's going to be really fun to sort of dig into those a little bit and uh, and compare and contrast them against uh, across a lot of different origin stories, and I think. Maybe I think some folks might be surprised how many different times Cap's origin story has been told. Yeah, and, and I'm going to be surprised a little bit too on some of those subtle things, right? Because I know I know some of the the larger ones. Maybe it's like, oh well, was it the Vita rays? Was it the uh, secret soldier or super? Was it super soldier serum? Uh, look at, I'm already getting that messed up. Um, you know, I mean, like there's like, there, those are the more obvious ones, but I know there's going to be a lot of subtle ones too. So, uh, that'll be fun. And then Bob, I don't know if you've been paying attention, you know, but that next episode is 48, you know, it's creeping up is 50. Yeah. I know. We got 50. episode 50 coming up. 50 uh, does creep up on you. <laughs> that's right. Doesn't it? Uh, so we're going to do uh, an anniversary show. I, yeah. I haven't really figured it out yet. Yeah. But it's going to be kind of like highlights, I think. Uh, some fun moments. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, well, that's creeping up on us. Wow. All right, Bob. Well, as always, it's been fun wrapping cap with you. Indeed. Let's do this again real soon, Rick. All right. He's Bob Lucius. I'm Rick Verbonis. And you've been listening to another episode of the Captain America Comic Book Fans Podcast. <laughs> Thank you.